Good morning, good morning, Rabbi Welcome to Breakfast and the Class. Breakfast and the Class today is sponsored and dedicated as a Chutur Muhtaram Bat Janjan and Rachel Bat Shoshana, sponsored by Devora Radfart. I hope I got the name right. Please uh, let me know if I did not. As well, dedicating this Chutur Rufuash for Chanoch Tzadok Ben Mazal. Also, for uh, dedicated by AJ Gindi in honor of Marshall Aronow and Isaac Ash, their lifesavers and transplant sponsors. May the act of saving a life serve as a source of protection and success for them and their families for many years to come. And as well, uh, the week of COVID was dedicated in loving memory of Sammy Said, of Shalom Lunish, sponsored by his son Isaac Said. We also have uh, longtime listeners, first time callers here with us today uh, the uh, two brothers, Fox. The, I think it's the Fox brothers, uh, Shmuel and David Fox, that are here with us joining for the very first time for the breakfast. <laughs> Baruch Hashem. Welcome, welcome. Okay. This Shabbat, we're going to be speaking Be'ezrat Hashem uh, about, the title of the class is called A Tale of Two Goats. We're going to be talking about an unbelievable uh, uh, insight into the two different uh, Seirim that the, the Kohen Gadol brings on, on the day of Yom HaKippurim. Very strange. If you look in all the commentators, they all struggle to explain what is this idea of sending a seir la azazel? What does the concept even mean? How could you uh, bring a sacrifice and, and push it off the mountain? What are we talking about? In the Beit HaMikdash, I understand. On the Mizbeach, I understand. But to take a, a seir out to the middle of nowhere, how does that serve anything? What's the Kiddushah there? What's the Tikkun uh, over there? So we'll Be'ezrat Hashem talk a little bit about this, the tale of two goats. But for today, um, I want to focus on one of the, a little, maybe a little bit of a different aspect with regards to this concept. We've spoken a lot about Yom HaKippurim throughout the few days that we started this process, okay? We spoke a lot about Aharon and the changing of his clothes, but there's one element I want to talk about. And in order to understand it, perhaps uh, we'll take maybe a step back. We're all familiar with the idea that when it comes to the process of counting the Omer, there is a cyclical nature to the counting of the Omer. Every week, as an example, has, if you look underneath the counting of the Omer, you'll find that there is a different element or a different uh, practice that we're supposed to be sharpening, we're supposed to be developing with regards to that specific place or that specific thing. So as an example, the first entire week was a week where we worked on the process of chesed. So you have chesed, shebechesed, gvura, shebechesed, etc., etc., etc. Each day gives you another facet, like the facets of a diamond, where each one of them it brings its own light to that midah. So as an example, a person could do kindness, but they could do kindness begrudgingly. That would not count as chesed shebechesed. It's befitting that that's the first thing, because as you know, chesed means kindness, and as you know, the entirety of the Torah is built on kindness. The Midrash actually says something remarkable when it comes to Ruth HaMoaviyah. When Ruth comes, she moves from Moav, Sneh Moav, to Eretz Israel. So uh, the, the, uh, the Midrash asks, why are we reading the story of Ruth on the holiday of Shavuot? And the, the, there's many different answers to that question. One of the answers is because David HaMelech was born on Shavuot, and this is the origin story of David HaMelech, but there's other answers as well. And I want to share with you the other answer that's brought down in the Midrash. The Midrash says that the entirety of the story of Ruth revolves around Chesed, around this uh, woman who was a Gioret, she was an Almanah, she's all by herself, 
Her mother-in-law doesn't have a dime to her name, Naomi. And she goes to the field of Boaz and they're giving her the extra parts of the field that go to the poor. So the, so, the, so to speak, the story revolves around the concept of chesed. And the reason why we do, do that or read that on Shavuot, because the Torah also revolves around chesed. The beginning of the Torah is God creating the world. Like the Pasuk says, Olam chesed yibaneh. God creates the world with chesed. Then we read about the fact that God takes care of all the needs of humanity. Then we read about the, the, the part that God is clothing the naked. Then we read about God visiting Avraham Avinu, visiting the sick. The Torah ends with God burying the dead, with burying Moshe Rabbeinu, where nobody knows where he is. So you have all of these different elements of the Torah that it's bookended, that it surrounds the concept of chesed. When Hillel is asked by the by the convert to explain to the Torah, what does Hillel say? The whole of the Torah can be understood with one concept, with the concept of That's all you really need to understand. If you don't like something to be done to you, don't do it to somebody else. So you see the Torah is personified by chesed. Now the depth of this understanding doesn't just mean do good deeds, do kind deeds. It's rather something much more profound. We all are familiar with the idea that on the holiday of Pesach, we bring the Korban Omer, that which starts the process of the Omer. The Gemara tells us that the reason why the Omer is brought from Seorim, from barley, is because barley is the food of an animal. The final Korban that ends the Omer is, is called the Shte Alechem, the two breads. And those showbreads that are brought on Shavuot are made out of chitim, they're made out of wheat. That means that we journey from the food of an animal when we start the Omer, to the food of a human when we end the Omer, which means that the process of receiving Torah is the process of turning an animal into a human being. A, a person without Torah, animal. A person with Torah, human. This gives us maybe a little bit of a kinder understanding when the Gemara tells us, Atem kiruyim adam, you are called a human being, ve'en ovde kochavim mazalot kiruyim adam. The people of the world, they're not called Adam. Were you calling non-Jews animals? That's what the Gemara is saying. The answer is yes. But not non-Jews exclusively. Jews do. Jews without Torah are also animals. Because when a person lives their life by their own creed, by their own decision-making process, they're an animal. They're acting on impulse. They're doing whatever they want to do. And here's the ironic part. You might have a person who happens to be living a really nice life. They're very kind. They're very nice. They're still following their own impulses. They're still doing whatever they want to do. There are animals that are very kind. There are dogs that save human beings from fires. You have animals that do kind things. They lick their masters. They bring you the newspaper every morning. Even if you don't have a subscription to the newspaper, they hush away from the next door neighbor. Fantastic, right? Very kind animals. But what does the dog do? It does whatever it wants. It does whatever it wants. And if you're doing whatever you want, even if you happen to be right, you are governed by your whims and desires. And the way I like to explain it is the famous adage that goes, even a broken watch is right twice a day. Because it's going to be 8 o'clock uh, you know, in the morning once. It's going to be 8 o'clock in the evening once. And at some point that broken watch is right twice a day. Now, you've heard that line before? You think, oh, that's so clever. It's so stupid. That's the dumbest line that was ever uttered. The watch is not right when time passed it by. 
If I wrote the, word, the letter 8 on the wall, does that mean that the 8 is right at 8 in the morning? The arm, the dead arms of the watch happen to be pointing in a direction because they have no other option. They can't be pointing at a non-time on a face of a watch. It's not right those two times. The right thing passed it by. You got that? If a person happens to do whatever they want to do, but they are unwilling to do things that they don't want to do, then the time will come where something will cross your radar that is the right thing, that you don't want to do. You have to do it anyway. Rabbi, what should I do? I don't love Shabbat. Keep it anyway. I don't like to pray, Rabbi. It's boring. I don't care. Pray anyway. Pray less. Pray with more intention. Learn the words. Let's come up with a strategy for how to get you there slowly. You still have to pray. This idea, you know, they say always the Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions. You know, look, if, if, you know, if it fits with your world, don't kill. Like, if you're, if you're happy to not be jealous, it might be a good idea, lo tachmot, to not be jealous. Right? They're not suggestions. These are obligations. And if that's the case, if that's the case, yeah? <clears throat> if that's the case, my friends, then we understand this idea that a person without Torah is an animal. It happens to not be a derogatory term. We share so much of our genetic material, our DNA, with apes, reptiles, right, you know, fish. There's elements of a human being. If you, if you, you, know, you scour the DNA code that we share with other living beings, if you broke down a human body, you'd find that we are carbon-based life forms. What differentiates a human being from an animal? A human being is a human being when he's choosing to go against his or her nature. Because an animal can't do that. And when it's doing something that seems very nice, but it's still in its nature, it's just following its programming. You know what we learn from this? My friends, we learn from this something that I think is very, very powerful. But it's very demanding. If you were raised religious, and it is in your nature to go pray, and it is in your nature to keep Shabbat. It is in your nature to make Birachot. What are you doing? Where are we seeing the emergence of Adam, of a human being? You could train a dolphin to do tricks. You could train a gorilla to paint a painting. You could train a dog to go and, uh, and do things. You could have a cat walking on its hind legs. Are we well-trained animals? Rev Dessler writes, in his famous Kuntres Abichira, he writes in his, uh, his notebook on free will choice. He writes that a person's free will, my free will is different than yours. And yours is different from your next door neighbors. And your next door neighbors is different than the rabbis. The rabbis is different from the chazan. Because it is a constantly moving place. I, if I asked you, where is the war being fought today in the Ukraine? You tell me, I need to check. One day it's in Mariupol, one day it's in Kiev, one day it's in Lviv. Like, we don't know. We have to go check because it's constantly moving. The battle lines of a person's free will choice where they are able to extend themselves just the tiniest bit past what they're used to. That battle line, it's constantly changing and it's constantly evolving. And we're constantly being given new chances to be great. You know, there's a famous line that says that the reason why 
The Jewish people, when they're keeping Torah, is called Adam, they're called man. It's not to state, to make a derogatory human term about everyone who's not following Torah. It's not the point. The point is, and I saw a magnificent explanation, that every other terminology that we use for humankind, ish, isha, man, woman, those terminologies, they have a possibility for the plural expression. Ish could be anashim. Isha could be plural nashim. Adam does not have a plural sense. And the reason for that is because a defined human is a human which cannot be split, which cannot be demarcated one from the other. When did the Jewish people receive the Torah? When they were all united. Vayichan Sham Yisrael, the Jewish people camped there in the singular. Vayichan, it doesn't say Vayahanu. They camped there next to the mountain. Ki ish echad echad. That means that the process of Torah was given to a people who for a moment were called Adam, one man. The journey of the Jewish people teaching Torah, not just to other Jews, but to the entire world, or Lagoim, where we're supposed to be a light unto the nations, where we're supposed to achieve, where the world will be filled with knowledge, from one ocean to the other, from sea to shining sea. When that will come, that will come because we will have done our jobs. But as I said the other day, ain't nobody listening. Nobody's listening to the Jew and his wisdom. Unless they understand, unless they know, unless they believe, unless they respect that the Jewish person is someone that's worthy to learn from. Famous line from Maya Angelou, she wrote, Nobody cares about how much you know until they know how much you care. If someone can see that you're an elevated human being, that you're different to them, that you operate in another way, then when you open your mouth and they listen, but if they think that you're the same as them, why should they listen to your nonsense over their nonsense? We're starting to understand how these two ideas, the concepts of Torah and the concept of achdut, of the unification of all of mankind. I mean, that is, that is what Mashiach is, by the way. And it's a wild thing. The Pasuk tells us straight out. I mean, think, it's hard to imagine now when we are on the brink of World War III, when Russia is now threatening nuclear warfare. You gotta be very careful, said the foreign minister of Russia. Right? The likelihood of nuclear warfare is very serious. The only word I understood in his native Russian was he said, Tidios. <laughs> now, he might have been referring to satellite radio, but I'm not sure. Either way, the point is, right? what did he say? It's very serious. We're on the brink of World War III. But the Pasuk tells us, right, that in the time of Mashiach, Baruch Baruch. The Pasuk tells us that in the time of Mashiach, um, Someone asked me once, Rabbi, why don't Jews, how come Jews don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah? I was like, leave me alone. <laughs> God. Uh, I don't have enough questions to answer. I got to answer that. He's that, you know, Jesus, he was the Messiah, Jesus. I said, really? So the world is at peace? <laughs> is that what's going on here? Is the world one religion, united under God? You know, go look online. What, is crime eliminated? All the signs that it tells us that Messiah has arrived. 
You know, and I understand it'll take the Messiah some time to sort stuff out. Like, I get that. But like, Yeshu, he's had a lot of time. If it was him, <laughs> we've given him 2,000 years. The guy hasn't moved the needle at all. <laughs> That's what the world in the time of Mashiach looks like. A perfected world. A united mankind. Where Adam, and think about this for one second. Adam is a lofty terminology for humankind when they're united, where they don't hate and they don't kill and they don't steal and they're not jealous. But they're united, they're operating uh, together. It's a wild thing to think that that actually is a journey back in time. The terminology we use all the time when we describe humanity at, at its perfection is like Adam Arishon Kodem Hachet, like Adam before the sin. It's wild that the terminology that we'll use for humanity at the end of days is Adam. And the term terminology we use for humanity in that first perfect moment is also Adam. But back in that time, you had Adam as one, as one because he was one, physically, as well as mentally, emotionally, spiritually. He shatters himself into a trillion pieces with that sin. And humanity, for the rest of its existence, tries to put those pieces together. Because it was the first time when a human being chose itself over its significant other. After Chava eats from the tree, she gives to Adam with her and he eats. Rashi says with her, because after she ate and she became, she got the wisdom of the tree of knowledge. She says, oh my gosh, I'm going to die and he's going to move on without me. The sin of humanity was when someone said, I put my needs, my wants, my agenda over somebody else. And Adam, in that moment, was broken. It also tells you how powerful the motivator of a person who feels left out can be. Who feels that they might be replaced. You think about, in the story of the destruction of the temple, how this man called Bar Kamtsa, Kamtsa and Bar Kamtsa gets thrown out of the wedding. He's excluded. He's pushed aside. He, he feels he's not part of the people, part of the gang. Not feeling part of something caused him to go to Rome and to burn the Beit HaMikdash down to the ground, to drive the Jewish people into exile. Exclusion is something which is so powerful, a motivator of hatred, of anger, of resentment. And not that it helps, and not that it's an excuse, but somehow every person that shoots up a school has the same bio. He was lonely, he had no friends, right? bullied in middle school. Not that that gives you any excuse, but you never hear of a guy who's captain of the football team, everybody's his friend, and he goes and shoots everybody. You don't hear that. So part of the journey of the Omer is to rectify that. The first week, therefore, is all about every flavor and every angle and every facet of chesed. So I want to try over the weeks that we're going to be spending uh, in the Omer to try and cover all the weeks. And because we missed the week of chesed, um, I wanted to just visit that place for one second. But before we end, I want to share with you one story. A story that's told by Rav Yaakov Galinsky. This man, the rabbi, was exiled uh, to Siberia from Russia. 
And it's actually a wild story how he was exiled. You know, they say politics makes strange bedfellows. Right? Who's exiled in Siberia? Yeshiva boys. <laughs> right? And the entirety of the political elite of Lithuania. So you have, like, the defense minister, the justice minister, right, the person of culture, all the people that were against communism, they chucked them into Siberia, to the gulag. Who's in the next thing? Shlomi, Yanki, Maishi, right, you know? They're making chalant, and these guys, you know, <laughs> this is what's going on there. And they're working side by side. Now, obviously, they formed two distinct groups, right? The Lithuanian elite, the politicians, these, all these non-Jewish uh, workers, and the Jews, but all young yeshiva boys for the crime of studying Torah. My friends, it's wild actually. So one day, you know, the only way to survive in Siberia is to stay warm. Anyone else dying from the cold. So the only way they would go out, everyone would be having five pairs of pants, three pairs of socks, five shirts. That's how they went out. They didn't have uh, moose knuckles, Canada goose, you know, macage coats. Right? They had uh, 64 pairs of shirts. That's what they had. Okay? Anyway, one day, the, the uh, what's it called? The uh, minister, the minister of, uh, of education uncovers, decides, realizes, he wakes up in the morning, screaming, wakes up everyone in the barracks, in the, in the cells. My pants! My pants! Obviously, that's not how... It's not an ideal to wake up in the way to wake up in the morning. That's not one of Siri's preferred alarms. My pants. That's not one. Although I kind of imagine that someone is going to turn that right now into a remix alarm, and they're going to send it to me from the wonderful group of listeners that we have, who some of which have too much time on their hands, which might be why they're listening to me. Anyway, so <clears throat> my pants, my pants. Everyone wakes up. What's his? What's in his pants? Had that five, four of his pants was stolen. They used to sleep in the one pair of pants and the shirt that they had, right? Because they had heat in the in the barracks. And they would put the pants on before they went to work. He can't, he's going to freeze to death. What's he going to do? He has no idea who the thief is. Who does he go to to help him? He comes to Yaakov Galinsky. So the, so the minister of education is now coming to this teenage yeshiva boy. He says, you Jews are very smart. Go find out who stole, who stole my pants. The rabbi, you know, the Torah teaches a person to think. So he realizes there could only be one direction to head, right? If you want to figure out who stole the guy's pants, right? They don't have, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, you know, vintage clothing shops in Siberia. The guy could sell the pants. The only reason why he borrowed the, steal the pants is to sell them, is to get something for them. There's no stores in Siberia. Who's the only person to barter with? Who's the only person he could sell those pants to? Who? The one person, the person who distributes the food. That's it. There is nobody else. So he goes to the man who distributes the food and he says, tell me, I know <laughs> that you got five pairs of pants, but why do you need five pairs of pants? He says, I'll tell you the truth. He says, the pots in the kitchen are boiling hot. I needed something to hold the pots. So I needed material. So I took this material, I ripped it up into shmatas, and now I can lift the pots without burning my hands. Hadda needs the pants, he doesn't freeze to death. Other guy needs the pants, so he doesn't burn to death. It's a funny world that they lived in. All right? And he says, okay, and what was the reward? What did the guy trade for? Because obviously it can't be something obvious. He says he traded um, for the fact that when I give him the soup, 
I don't give him from the top of the soup, which is just liquid. I go down to the bottom and I give him all the parts with the vegetables, with whatever was used to make up that, the soup, which is healthier and will fill you up more. Yaakov Galinsky, this teenage guy, slash crime fighter, <laughs> right? Learns Torah by day, fights crime at night, okay? This is, this, he discovers, he's figured this out. <coughs> <coughs> him and Encyclopedia Brown are a team, right? All he needs to do now is wait till they distribute the soup, watch who gets the bowl with all the stuff from the bottom, and he's got his guy. He waits, of course, after a short while, criminal is revealed. He goes back to the minister of education and he says, listen, don't ask me how, don't ask me why, but I know who stole your pants. He says, can I get them back? He says, no. They've already been ripped up into shreds. What's done is done. You're going to have to figure out another way. So what are you all thinking? Let him take the other guy's pants. This guy, the education minister, was giant. Another guy was, uh, you know, a little skinny guy. Maybe he could use that as extra sleeves. I don't know. Okay? The guy pulls him aside. You know, he, he yells at him, he screams at him, he embarrasses him, he, you know, he, he makes sure that he gets maybe some of the reward that he was supposed to get. But at the end of the day, the wisdom of this young man from a Gemara that says, Lo achbera ganva, it is not the rat or the mouse that steals, but rather the hole to which he escapes. Because if the mouse couldn't take that food somewhere, then there would be no purpose for it. So when you're looking for a thief, a lot of times, if you want to find that thief, all you need to look at is what is the advantage? Because it is the advantage that drives. That dri now, if, as an example, people are stealing Rolexes. The way to combat that is not to put a guard on the front of the house of every person, but it's to eliminate the market to resell a Rolex. If you eliminate the market, like iPhone did with the iPhones, you can't, if you stole an iPhone, the owner could just call up and shut down the iPhone and you can never turn the iPhone on again. So if you could create a situation where the thing that you stole is not valuable, you stop people from stealing. My friends, we learned from here a tremendous lesson. If a person wants to eliminate stealing, if a person wants to eliminate sin, what does he need to eliminate? He needs to eliminate the reward for that sin. Now you can't control anyone but yourself. Right? You can't control anyone but yourself, but at least yourself. We say, when we do Teshuvah, we did all these things, velo shava lanu, and it wasn't worth it. We look at the things that we did wrong, and we declare them to be worthless. We declare them to be unimportant. The way you change your physical habits and your actions is by changing the way you think about those physical actions and those physical habits. If you could in some way change your relationship with being the person that takes advantage of other people. All the time you hear this, some people talk about how they did this and they took advantage of that guy and they tricked that guy and you don't know what I did. I walked into the room, I you know, put the deal on the table like this and then I forced them to do that and I forced them to do something else. You know, they, they're proud of the things that they did where they messed over someone else and you know what? People around them, they give them praise for that thing. The one thing which is good about plaques and charity is that people can be made to feel good about doing something good. In our society where, you know, in, in this secular music, you know, these people are talking about how they shot people 
And now they, you know, they're the top person. They destroyed everyone else. The competition. And that's the heroes. Those are the, you know, then of course the result is that people grow up wanting to emulate and wanting to do those things. If we change our minds, then we change our worlds. Hashem should bless us in this process of Omer to slowly reprogram our value systems. The first week is Chesed. We're now in the second week. The second week is Givurah. We're going to have to catch up to next week. We'll talk about this idea, what it means to act and to live with strength. And then we'll go on to each one, to each one of the seven cycles that we have uh, in the Omer. And hopefully uh, through that process we will grow throughout this magnificent time, the time of the receiving of the Torah. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.